We live on Facebook. So you're giving me authority, authorization to start, is what you're saying? Yes, sir. Okay, this is us starting. I'm a little bit nervous that Terry is staring intently at the recording device. Are we good? You're being recorded over there, so if this doesn't work, we can still play okay. it later. Okay, so you're happy? I'm happy. That's all we care about. Here we go. We are, this was supposed to be October 31st, uh, but that was last week was Halloween, and we were overwhelmed. Uh, it turned out, by the way, uh, oops, I'm gonna, that we were pretty much wiped out as soon as you guys left. Okay. So we made the right decision anyway. And so we had too many people coming to ring the doorbell. The dogs were barking and it seemed to be untenable. So we pushed it off till today. So here we go. This is really November the 7th in uh, lecture discussion number 154 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. That's where we are. That's where we've been for such a long time. And I'm going to begin this week by stating that heaps of material was presented, what was that, two weeks ago, right? Two weeks ago, requiring at least uh, that we that I make some effort, uh, some effort should be made to provide condensation here. It's a futile hope um, that uh, we'll get a summation of sorts, but that might bring some lucidity to the wreckage, probably not. Uh, why start now is what I can hear people say. Why would we do it now? Uh, just going to do my best. This all began because Debbie M. from Facebook wanted an explanation of Isaiah 35.9, which was a wonderful question, and she wanted to know as, as it applies to the immortality of animals. And Isaiah 35.9 is an incredible verse. It describes the millennial state of animals as I have discussed previously. It's describing the millennial state. Again, you have an endemic state, you have or an Eden state, you have a fallen state, you have a millennial state, and you have a raised in glory state of animals. And the last one, of course, is the glorified state. So again, the endemic state, or I'm sorry, the millennial state is being described in Isaiah 35.9 as opposed to the fallen state of animals. And usually, so you start asking questions, don't you? Why do animals go through this these stages We do the same thing. Humans go through stages, and the animals go through stages with regard to their condition. So get that going on in your mind to begin with. But usually 35.9 of Isaiah is coupled to uh, 11.6-9 of Isaiah. And Isaiah 65.17-25, as we covered two weeks ago, and all of these and others refer to the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6. And that's where all the trouble begins, when we get into this Prince of Peace. And I probably shouldn't read refer to it as trouble. It's a calamitous, it's cataclysmically abysmal, maybe a problematic. It's a it's it's difficult. Because you, you see Isaiah 35:9 leads eventually to Ezekiel 44 through Ezekiel 44 through 46. In other words, Ezekiel chapter 44, Ezekiel chapter 45 and Ezekiel chapter 46, which as you may remember is this mystery of the prince. The identity of the prince. Mystery of the prince. That is why Isaiah 11 is so important here. That prince essentially is in 44, 45, and 46 chapters of Ezekiel. The question is, immediately, is the prince of peace the prince? I have the prince of peace, Isaiah 9.6, 9.6, I have the pre, the prince, Ezekiel 44, 45, 46. So that's the question. Are they the same person? And last week I mentioned that the prince is mentioned 12 times. And I, I probably should have done that, but that's my position. I think I can defend it. But I need to make you aware that there's a 14 mentioned view. There's a 10 mentioned view, mentioned view. And there's a 13 mentioned view. In other words, there's dispute as to the correct numerology of the prince. I obviously believe that there is a correct numerology. I think numerologically uh, what's going on with the prince and and any of the numerological issues I think are valuable. I'll explain why I think that in a minute. Anyway, some commentators look at all of these verses, for example, Ezekiel 45.9, and they throw it out because they they omit it because it's translated uh, as a plural. So there's princes, and so they discount that as, as referring to the prince. Others disregard the plurality, and they add it back in. 
And that's how you get all these discrepancies. And other others uh, question whether Ezekiel 45.7 and 46.10 and 46.17, whether they belong in there. What about Ezekiel 12.10? You'll hear that many, many times when you get into this discussion. And hopefully some of you, I know Chad down there in Florida is already figuring it out. Uh, others, uh, the, you, have, you have others, you have other others, and then you have other, other, others. They all fight. They dispute 44.3 of Ezekiel. And hopefully you recognize the point, yea, a point. Maybe. There are five Hebrew words translated prince from Ezekiel 44.3 to 46.18. And all are basically similar. They're derived from the same structure. And then you've got this issue of pronouns. Because not all, all pronouns are translationary. Some of them were just inferred in the translation. Does, am I making sense there? In other words, they, the translators actually put the pronouns in, even though the Hebrew did not have them. And so this question becomes, which are, are specific? Uh, which have the actual Hebrew word for he, him, and his? And should pronouns be counted in the first place? So obviously, assigning numerological conclusions to English translations is fraught with difficulty. And I keep bringing these kinds of things up because I want you to know it. It's also of great value. Numerological conclusions are great value because why? That's right, because math. Physicists have for over a hundred years asked the same question along with philosophers. Philosophers said, are we particle-based? Are only uh, uh, consciousness? But physicists say, say it this way, are we made of math? And you'll see that constantly if you begin to study the physics of uh, particle-based physics and humanity. If we are made of math, what's it say of the one who made us? And again, all of this question, are you made of math, goes back to Genesis 2.7. Are we made of math? And that's why we are always math. And no matter, you can't get away from math when you deal with the Bible. And I, I make a joke out of it, but it's absolutely the case. God likes math. Did he make us out of mathematics? If we are made of math, what does that even mean, really? But if we are made of math, how is it that we are made of math? And how does Genesis 2-7 describe being made of math, along with Ecclesiastes 12-7? Okay, got all of that? Where was it? Ultimately, the central question of Ezekiel 44 through 46 chapters is the identity of the prince. Who is he? You make that decision, then you have consequences or implications. The, it's the who is the ruler. Some will call him the ruler. Who is the ruler question. Note that I interchanged prince with ruler there. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, all devote considerable energy and descriptions of the messianic kingdom. And all three, therefore, have to be simultaneously examined. And that is an arduous task. I mean, it is brutally difficult. But, all that said, Isaiah 9.6 is probably the linchpin. Because Prince of Peace. Everybody knows Prince of Peace. It's in all the Christmas songs. Well, I should say Winter Solstice songs. But I'm getting political there. I think 9.6 is the key. Isaiah 9.6 declares that Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And therefore, as we did a couple of weeks ago, we need to consider the collectivity, the totality, the all of it, if you will, the definition of Prince of Peace. What does this title mean? What does it mean primarily? And what's the number one meaning of Prince of Peace? What peace is Christ talking about when he assumes this title, when he says it of himself? Now, he, <clears throat> he actually says, I didn't come to bring peace. So what does he mean? Romans 5.1 then comes immediately. So when we're talking about this, we're going to go to Romans 5.1. Right off the bat, because uh, Romans 5.1, uh, we have peace with God through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, I added in the Prince of Peace. I think it's appropriate to do it. I'll do it again. Colossians 1.20. Let's put that on the board. 
I'll do it the same way. Through the Prince of Peace, all things reconciled to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And I repeat that. I substituted, I added in his title, Prince of Peace. I, I commingled Isaiah 9-6 with Romans 5-1, Colossians 1-20. I think that that is rightful. I believe the Romans 5, 1, Colossians 1, 20 are the New Testament complements. They refer back to Isaiah 9, 6, and I specifically think they refer back to this Prince of Peace title. All of the titles, Almighty God, Wonderful, Counselor, Father, all of those titles are being impacted in the New Testament. And it was necessary for Christ to make peace because both in heaven and in earth we did not have peace. We did not have peace in heaven. We have not had it since the fall of Satan. We have not had peace on earth since the fall of Adam. The first king of Eden and the second king of Eden. And the whole creation groans in pain and and is in need of reconciliation and peace through the blood of Christ. The blood of the Lamb of God, Romans 8.22 Revelation 13.8. And that's the peace that no one can understand. We can't understand how he is making peace because we have all of this turmoil. God is not at peace with the angelic realm, the entirety of it, and he is not at peace with humanity, the entirety of it. And that is the peace that no one can understand, Philippians 4.7. It's incomprehensible. We cannot understand the peace part of the Prince of Peace. It's not possible to understand it. That's what the Bible says. Because it is the solution to sin. It is the Genesis 15, the lamp and the furnace. That's where we are. How does God get peace with us? He has to create it inside of the triune Godhead, doesn't he? And no one can understand it. It's also Matthew 26, 39 through 42. That's the cup of Gethsemane. That's why he says, your will be done, not mine. Because of the implications of that cup. 1 Timothy 3, 16 calls it the greatest of all mysteries. The blood of Christ brings peace. And only the blood of Christ. And what does it mean when God says peace? Not what we mean, what he means. Always have his definitions if you can. And I submit that we approach the many issues of Ezekiel 44 through 47 we have to have some concept some definition of what it means to be the prince of peace we need to know what prince what what he means by prince we need to, why doesn't he call himself the king of, pre, of peace, for example? Why does he call himself the prince of peace? We need to know what, what he means by prince and what he means by peace. And again, to repeat from Rupture 153, October the 24th, Ezekiel 40 through 48 is describing the millennial messianic 1,000-year kingdom. That answers Debbie's question, I think, as well as I possibly can. What is being described with regard to the animals there? is their um, the millennial or the millennium condition or their millennium status. Okay, Jesus Christ has three offices. He is the prophet, Deuteronomy 18.15. He's the high priest, Hebrews 4.14-15. And he's the king of kings, Revelation 17.14. At Revelation 17.14, Christ is identified as the Lamb of God. So he's also called the Lamb of God the Lord of Lords, and the King of Kings. And 1 Timothy 6.15-16 adds that Christ alone has immortality. Now, that is an unbelievable statement. Christ alone has immortality. What does that mean? Because you'll say to me, well, you've been talking about the immortality of animals for a long time, and you talk about the fact that we're immortal, humanity is immortal, the question is destination. Same thing's true for the uh, animals. The issue for animals is which destiny do they have, what destination. They all have the same one, where humanity has has two destinations. What does he mean in 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16? God alone, Christ alone has immortality. Also says there that no man can see Christ and no man will ever see him. So that tells you that that sentence is a lot more difficult than you might consider. 
Because we say, well, men have seen Jesus Christ. And we will see Jesus Christ. What does it mean that no man will ever see him and that Christ alone has immortality? Well, I think, uh, I'm hopeful that most of you have figured that out already, but just in case. Immortality must therefore come from Christ. That's what that means. There is no source of immortality except from Christ. So if you have immortality, it had to come from Christ. That's what Timothy is saying. Immortality, therefore, is is synonymous with existence. Immortality comes from Christ. It must come from Christ. He is the being from which all existence must come. That is what is meant there. Psalm 136, 1 through 9. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords for his mercy endures forever. Deuteronomy 10:17. The Lord of Lords, the great God, shows no partiality. Romans 2:11. For there is no partiality with God. The Lord of Lord, King of Kings, is the source of immortality. And no one can see him, which is saying what? He's infinite. He says he's infinite. You cannot see infinity. That's what is being meant there, in my view. So what does that mean? Obviously, those who believe in him accept his mercy. Uh, and I should say that it's his blood which covers sins, his savings grace. Those who, have, who do that will have his mercy forever because of his infinity. And the fact that immortality has to come from him who is immortality. Just like existence must come from him who is existence. Just like consciousness must come from consciousness. Infinity must come from infinity. All of that to say that Ezekiel 40 through and including Ezekiel 48 are in the context of Christ's third office. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. Uh, he is, that is, he's the Prince of Peace. And that is when he is in the millennium. All of those things are true of his 1,000 year reign of the King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the seventh millennial day. Remember, we have seven days. The seventh day is the 7,000th. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. It's the seventh, one thousandth day. Days a thousand years. And we have a thousand on the seventh. I, I, I'm not getting the seventh done very well here. Just recognize that we have the first day was a thousand years. The second day was a thousand years. The seventh day will also be a thousand years. That's the millennial reign of the King of Kings, Lord of Lord, Prince of Peace. <coughs> Excuse me. And this seventh millennium is the time of peace. Now, what does peace mean? You have to define it correctly. Peace between nations that will occur in the seventh millennium, the, the one thousandth, uh, the one thousand years that is the seventh one thousand. Um, and this termination of Genesis nine two comes. The Genesis nine two edict, if you remember. Uh, that God gave, he said that the animals would have fear and dread of mankind, and rightfully so. Because mankind was no longer in a sin condition, in a fallen condition, and the animals in a fallen condition, the, the mankind was no longer the caretaker of animals, but man would become a predator of animals. Uh, and you have, and also the vegetable fruit sources mostly destroyed in the flood, the lush forest gone, the environment would be one of violence, corruption, and groaning. And at that point, animals had fear and dread. Now you can imagine the, the, the difference between what Adam had and what Noah has. Genesis 9-2. But this finally ends. This, this violence between animals and humanity finally ends with the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Prince of Peace, ruling from his mountain where he has his temple. Uh, once more, the animal kingdom is at peace with the human kingdom. And each also at peace with themselves. So the animals are at peace inside their own kingdom, and they're at peace with the human kingdom. That hadn't occurred since Genesis, and you can see what he's doing. He is repairing and restoring. He's going back to Genesis uh, uh, 1, 2, and one, chapters 1 and chapters 2. 
So not only are they at peace with each other's kingdoms, but they're also at peace within themselves. The King of Kings, Jesus Christ, has come and brought a truce to the world. Notice I call it a truce, so to speak. Keep in mind, peace has come in the millennium, but there's still sin there. The millennium has sin in it. That's really obvious uh, that uh, at the end of the age, there's this incredible rebellion. Sin remains alongside of peace. And that explains the Revelation 19.15. Is that is always puzzling people. And it shouldn't. It looks like a 7, but I'll make it a 9. Revelation 19.15. Christ will shepherd. He will rule. The word means shepherd. Christ will shepherd in the millennium with a rod of iron. Why does he need a rod of iron? And again, this is a truce. It's temporary because why is it temporary? Why do we have a temporary peace? Obviously, the peace of the millennium is not the peace of the new Jerusalem, is it? There's a difference. It says, it gives you the reason, Revelation 23. The reason we have a truce and uh, some kind of calming, if you want to think of it that way, because Christ is shepherding. What is he shepherding? What does he mean by shepherding? He will rule, if you want to think of it this way, in the millennium with a rod of iron. Why does he need a rod of iron? And again, there's a sheep element here. So you, see you have the shepherd's rod. And again, I said temporary, truce, because 23... Revelation, Satan must, the Bible says, Satan must be released. He is bound and he's in prison for 1,000 years and he must be released. And he, of course, initiates another rebellion. It's the second Magog Gog. I have Magog Gog and I have Magog Gog. Some would say you have Gog Magog and Gog Magog. But the key to knowing Ezekiel and Revelation is to know the difference between Magog Gog and Magog Gog. Because there is a difference. I have one Magog Gog, Magog Gog number one, say it really fast, and I have Magog Gog number two. Why do I have two Magog Gogs? So again, the second Magog Gog is opposed to the first Magog Gog that is prior to the millennial reign of Christ in Ezekiel 38. So I have 1,000 years of peace, but I have to define peace. It's not total peace. It's partial peace and it's temporary. And then Satan is released. Who releases him? We see that in Revelation 9. Same process. So I have this 1,000 years of peace, but I've got to define the peace, and it's bracketed by two Magog-Gog attacks on Israel. They're both called Magog-Gog, or Gog-Magog. I have a before and after, if you will. Satan deceives the nations again. How is that possible? I have Christ on the temple, in the temple, on the mountain, with a rod of iron, and yet Satan is able to deceive the nations again. After a thousand years of incredible peace, I mean, compared to what we got now, it's absolutely astonishing the peace that's there. But at the end of that, Satan deceives, he lies to the nations again, and they believe him again. What's the lie? It's the same lie, different day. Why does it work again? But what exactly is this lie? Satan lures them to attack Jerusalem and Israel again. You have God himself on the temple, on the mountain, and he says, today's a great day to attack Jerusalem. It's inexplicable. And as before in Ezekiel 38.6, God sends fire, Revelation 29. He destroys the armies again. And Satan is then finally cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20.10. He's finally removed. Now we can start talking about what peace means now, or at that point. Have your definition of peace. And your definition of peace changes. 
For today, just notice the symmetry between Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 20 and ask the obvious question, why are there two Magog-Gog invasions of Jerusalem and Israel? Why are there two of them? The millennium, if you want to think of it this way, is a Magog-Gog sandwich. One in the beginning, one in the end, the millennium in the middle. Why that design? What's he trying to say? But back to Satan that who must be released. Why must Satan be released? Why was Satan imprisoned in the pit for 1,000 years and the Antichrist and the false prophet thrown into the lake of fire, Revelation 19.20? How come they didn't go into the abyss with Satan? Why didn't I keep all three of them? They have that triad issue where they're trying to replicate the triunity of God. Why not just keep it? But two of them go into the lake of fire, but not Satan. He goes into the abyss. How interesting that that the Antichrist came out of the abyss, and some people think the false prophet will have already come out of the abyss as well. There's all kinds of interesting positions on the false prophet, whether or not he's Nimrod, for example. But why was Satan imprisoned in the pit for a thousand years, and the Antichrist and the false prophet thrown in the lake of fire? The Antichrist and the false prophet were slain by Christ at the Battle of Armageddon, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. They are likely the first killed there. At that particular time when they're killed, there's a huge army behind them or accompanying them. Satan the same way. There's a huge army going to accompany Satan when he comes after Jerusalem after the thousand years. But again, the Antichrist and the false prophet, probably, I think the math is on my side here, and we are made of math. Uh, Just saying. But they're probably the first killed. Why wouldn't he do that? I think he would. I think he does. And their armies are stunned because the Antichrist is incredibly powerful. He, He is the beast. Who can stand against the beast? Well, we find out who can stand against the beast. Poof. Instantly dead. And his armies are shocking, shockingly, they're just stunned by how easily the Antichrist is executed by Christ. And just poof. And uh, the shock overwhelms them, and it's reminiscent of the Ezekiel 38, same battle. In Ezekiel 38, they also are stunned, and they flee, and they run, and they stampede, and they abandon their weapons, and they start killing each other. The armies of of the Ezekiel 38, the first Magog God, they start killing each other. They, they can't tell who the enemies are, who the enemy is. And of course, it's obviously God. They can't fight, they can't see him. Pretty hard to fight somebody that can kill you and you can't see him. But again, notice the symmetry, the correspondence between Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 19. None escape. As you know, the birds of prey of all every sort come, and the beasts of the field are called, and they eat and they devour the fallen, Ezekiel 39, 4-6. That's before the millennium. Look at the vengeance on mankind here by the animal kingdom. There are millions and millions of dead soldiers there that join the Antichrist. Many millions. And the birds and the beasts of the field are called by God, and they eat and devour the fallen. So we have animals eating human instead of humans eating animals. Genesis 9-2. And uh, this also appear, repeats at, excuse me, also repeats at Revelation 19-17 where the birds of heaven that fly, oh this is a fantastic verse. There's birds of heaven that fly in the midst of heaven. So where are they flying? In the midst of heaven. Now what does that mean? Many people will say, well they're just in the atmosphere here on earth. But that's not what it said. It says the birds that are in the midst of heaven. How did they get to the midst of heaven? There's no other There's no other solution. But they are likewise call, called, they're gathered by the loud voice of the Almighty God, Jesus Christ Himself, Revelation 19.15, and the birds that fly in the midst of heaven assemble for this great supper and they kill, or they eat the armies that are slain. Uh, in Armageddon. It's called the Supper of the Great God. And so again, correspondence, congruency, relationship between Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 cannot be ignored either. So each time, the confederacy from the north, the armies of the Antichrist, and the armies of Satan, each time they all come to attack 
Jerusalem, and each time they are slaughtered. And it is beyond obvious that Satan and the Antichrist know that that's going to happen. I've said that many, many times in my so-called career. Satan and the Antichrist know that this is the inevitable result. They have full knowledge. The first army of Magog Gog might have been a little bit delusional because it was led by a man, Gog. Most people believe that this is uh, the Russian uh, influence here. So let's go ahead and call him Gog. And Gog probably didn't anticipate that God would destroy him and his forces because he just didn't anticipate. And, and you would scream what? Read the book. I mean, come on, you got a book, you got Ezekiel. Read the book, find out whether or not you're going to win or not, and find out there that you're going to get slaughtered, and don't do it. But they never read the book. They never read the book. Satan and the Antichrist, they read the book. They know. They have no doubt. They read. And that, uh, if you want to know where I get that position, that is revealed by the farewell kiss of Judas at Matthew 26:49, and the throwing of the 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11:13. That is why I know that Judas read the book. So did Satan. And they're combined at that particular time. And, and that they, Satan and, the, and his seed, the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15, they fully realize that God holds their breath in his hand, Daniel 5.23. You're attacking the person that holds your breath in his hand. Therefore, they know that attempting to kill Christ is ridiculously impossible. It's insanity. So their whole goal is to make human beings insane. How stupid are human beings? Turns out they're incredibly stupid. Somebody pointed out today that everything that God saw, calls evil is being, being promoted by a political party in our country. Read the book. They never read the book. They have no idea. I've been in debates, as you know, with evolutionary philosophers and with uh, atheistic physicists and they don't have any idea what's in the Bible. They don't even care. They don't want to read it. They'll never read it. It is a spiritual thing. You have to have the Holy Spirit to understand it and they'll never do it. So they um, they mass these huge armies and they go off to be slaughtered and you say, why didn't you why didn't you know? Well, insanity. There's a darkness of the mind here, Romans. But Satan and his seed, to repeat it, are not insane. They are cunning. They have a plan. And that explains why Satan must be released. Revelation 23. There is, again, an equivalence, a conformity to why the abyss must be opened in Revelation 23 and Revelation 9. Revelation 9 is where the star fallen, that Satan is given the keys to the abyss. As you know, Revelation 9.1. The motive and the plan of the demonic herd that rises up from the abyss and kills one-third of mankind, at least two billion, might be three billion people, is exactly the strategy of the Antichrist and the and at Revelation 19, 19 through 21. And exactly the same strategy and method and motive of Satan in Revelation 27 through 10. <coughs> Excuse me again. So how does all of that fasten to the Prince of Peace? Prince of Peace. And his millennial reign is King of Kings. Again, I'm asking the question. How is it possible to amass an army of billions, it says, to attack God in Jerusalem, at his temple, on the mountain? And the answer is given at Revelation 28. Satan must be released, and he is able to deceive and gather for war against Jesus Christ a number that is, the, that is equal to the sands of the sea. And that's billions. And God wants everybody to know that that's what he's able to do. How is he able to do it? Keep to the forefront that 1,000 years of peace has been in place. Death is rare. Unbelievers, they die at 100. 
Isaiah 65, 20. And everybody considers that a tragedy. These are really young people. They're dying at 100. Why would they choose to die at 100? They choose to die at 100 because they reject the blood of Christ. So you have all this peace and then you have this rejection of the blood of Christ that ends in mortality. That's been going on for a thousand years. And animals are in their pre-fallen state. The Edenic state. It's a time of joy. Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty himself, is on the throne. And yet Satan is able to raise and deceive an army of billions. How? I'm repeating the question. How? And they all believe that Christ can be killed. He can be killed. Are you an idiot? Yes. How is Satan able to say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to attack him. We've got billions of us. We're going to attack him. And we're going to kill this guy who holds the breath, our breath in his hand and is infinite. That's their plan. But they buy it. And they're, they believe that Christ can be killed and they're eager to attack. They want, what's their goal? What, what, are they, what does Satan offer them? He's offering them something. They don't know that it is death, eternal death. They think it's something else. Obviously, they believe that if we can kill him, we won't die at 100. That's got to be there. Isaiah 65, 20. Let me put that on the board. Isaiah 65, 20 has to somehow fit into how Satan can get the sands of the sea. How many people, I've asked this question many times in my so-called career, how many people do you think in the millennium are less than a hundred years old. It's a logarithmic thing. Let me ask the question this way. How many people today on earth are less than a hundred years old? Almost eight billion now. Almost certainly seven billion. So how many billion are going to be there at the end of the millennium when hardly anybody dies? Everybody's a hundred. How, how many hundred year olds are in that army? I guess is the best way to put it. Billions of them. So they don't want to die at a hundred. And therefore, they are hardened in one way, aren't they? All you have to do to avoid being dead at a hundred is believe in the blood and accept the grace and mercy of the Lord God of creation. But they don't. They want to go with Satan. And they're eager, again, they're, there's, you don't have to... The job isn't tough here for Satan. He's got willingness on his side. They want to replace goodness, the goodness of Christ... With the evil of Satan. That's what they want to do. Why does mankind choose evil? Satan knows. And we see this in Job 1 and Job 2. We know what his lie is. And he knows it's a lie. And he knows the eventuality. But he is able to attract a huge force. Convince billions to attempt a suicidal, insane offensive war and that's amazing obviously there's almost no end of those who prefer wickedness and a, a life of wickedness to a life of righteousness and this is good and evil being demonstrated being reprised why is there so much hatred for that which is good and it's important to recognize that the satanic deception is not regarding some kind of kingdom with Satan on the throne where evil men divide power and subject and enslave those whom they conquer, or what we call the usual pattern that has existed since the fall of Adam, what we call the historical record. In this case, absolute power does not corrupt because the corruption has already been present here. And Satan provides a vision that wickedness and evil will triumph over good. And Satan merely convinced these that joined him that Christ could be slain. Or that Christ would not kill them. It's got to be one of the two. He had to say, look, Christ will not kill you. He will abdicate. He will withdraw and he will allow wickedness to prevail. Listen, he's allowed wickedness to prevail all the way up till now. As you guys are here. And he'll just let it happen. He'll let it go. Because he's got to let it go, right? Because he's the author of evil, so he can't, he can't kill people that he, that he caused to be evil. That part of the lie is, is I think, and it's certainly there, along with other things. But again, Satan knows it's a lie. 
apparently at the end of the millennium, all academic structure has collapsed. Nobody can read. Nobody knows history. Nobody knows about Ezekiel 38. Nobody knows about Revelation 19. Uh, no surprise there. We don't have uh, history. We don't have history today. Why would we have history then? There's no historical truth today, uh, as well. Has also been contaminated with political advocacy. But we have the internet. Well, we have the internet. You know, if it's on the internet, it's going to be true. You can absolutely be sure of it. And you notice a pattern here, I hope. A large army surrounds the camp of saints in the beloved city, Jerusalem. God destroys them, Ezekiel 38, Revelation 19, Revelation 20. Bang, 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 three times. Three times. Before the tribulation, at the end of the tribulation, and at the conclusion of the 1,000 year, years of peace. And I want you to notice the association now between peace and war. And I thought about this a lot, and I thought, well, I'll write a book. I'll call it Peace and War. Thanks for laughing. See, I, I don't think anybody's ever thought of this. Peace and War. I make it a big book. Really thick. Really thick. Peace and War. And you can steal that. Feel free to appropriate my original idea here. Take it and run. But it's going to be a moneymaker, don't you think? Peace and War. Okay, enough of that. Where am I? Notice I'm in the present tense here. Instead of where was I, it's where am I now. The evidence implies that those who are deceived at Revelation 28 through 9 are those who are yet not 165-20 Isaiah. And these are they who come to kill the Prince of Peace. And notice the Prince of Peace is going to defend his beloved city, Jerusalem. Why is the city of Jerusalem called the beloved city? Because the beloved city is filled with the beloved. It's filled with those who love the Prince of Peace. And those are the ones who come to the beloved city, Zechariah 14, 16 through 19, on the feast day of tabernacles. Why the feast day of tabernacles do all the saints in the world come to the beloved city? It's a pilgrimage. We have to figure that out next week. That seems to be likely the time chosen for Satan's final assault, don't you see? I hope I'm making sense. The beloved city is filled with the beloved because it's the Feast of Tabernacles, and that is the day that Satan uh, chooses his final assault. He knows, of course, the first attempt by Satan and the Antichrist didn't go well. That's an understatement. The one, again, who holds the breath of every man in his hand, Daniel 5.23, is formidable. Being outside of time is a distinct advantage, along with omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience. Anyway, Zechariah 14.12 describes a situation the Satan Antichrist army confronted. So we get to see what happened. We know what happened. And here's what it says. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets, and their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Read the book. And that reminds me, that description reminds me of what physicists call uncontrolled thermonuclear fusion. Hydrogen nuclei into helium, or what we call a thermonuclear bomb. Keep in mind that the one who created the sun, hydrogen into helium, is on the throne of his beloved city. That's where he is. Fire from him is not uncontrolled, it's controlled. He holds all things in his hand, after all, so controlled Nuclear, thermonuclear fusion is the fire of God, ultimately. I think. I have a feeling that that sun is a, is a model of what he's capable of. And I know what you're thinking, because that's my job, to know what you're thinking. <laughs> you're thinking, what does this have to do with the animal sacrifices that seem to be occurring in the Temple of Jerusalem? Exactly. What are you doing all of this stuff for? Here I have animal sacrifices. We think 
that seem to be happening in the presence of Jesus Christ, who is life himself. He is life. He's immortality. He's on the throne during the millennium, and there appears to be the death of animals in the millennium. And why? That doesn't seem to make sense, which means there must be a terrific treasure here. It's got to be amazing. And I get this question, what did you mean, Mr. Highly Trained Religious Professional, when you said last Sunday, well, it wasn't last Sunday, was it? It was a week ago last Sunday, that this is some kind of memorial system and not an atonement system. It was definitely not an atonement system. And so your choice is, is then left to be obvious. It's a memorial system. Why doesn't the Prince of Peace make peace with those who assemble to kill him? Is another question I get. Why doesn't he just say, hey, let's all get along here? I, he can coerce peace, can't he? But he doesn't. He does not coerce peace. That's why. Why doesn't he coerce peace? Force us to like him. He won't do it. Why not just face plant them as he did to the Romans in the temple guard of John 18, 4 through 9? He can do that. Freeze them into place. They don't have to kill them. They can just sit there for a couple hundred years. Can't move. Can he keep them alive? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Would that change a single one? You have 6,500 years or so now of angels who have been in that abyss. You changed a single one of them, Revelation 9? Satan Satan been changed? No. And again, he doesn't do the I am that I am. He could. Exodus 3.14 like he did in Gethsemane. He could do that thing. But he doesn't. And we'll figure that out soon. That's a relative term. One cannot ignore that Christ, the Prince of Peace, total peace, establishes total peace by defending his saints with war. Peace and war. Can't deny it. It's obviously there. Some might argue that that's a contradiction. And they do argue that. They essentially, they contend that peace is the opposite of war. Thank you. I see the hand. War, therefore, can never result in peace. And you'll discover that this is a line of thought is quite common. And yet the evidence of Scripture, Revelation 19, Revelation 20, reveals that the, the inevitability of war, there has to be war. Because he won't coerce anyone into peace. He won't. He won't enslave anybody. There's a free issue here. The sin nature of man and angels, uh, the willful choosing of war... Minds that are intent to thoughts only evil continually who are filled with murderous violence, Genesis 6-5, Genesis 6-11, they've got to be opposed. They've got to be intercepted and confronted. Evil cannot be allowed to endure unabated. And Jesus, why not? God won't do that. If Jesus Christ allows evil to exist without accountability forever, he's not a just God. And that's the problem. God, goodness rises up to confront wickedness. It does. This is the principle of Genesis 3.17. How quickly evil spread through the world from Genesis 3.4 to Genesis 6.5. The death toll was enormous. Only evil thoughts continually. Murder continually. That's what happened in a very short period of time. But as you are aware, there's an equilibrium between the great flood of Genesis 7 and Genesis 8 and the great tribulation of Revelation 4-22. through 22. They're very similar. Genesis 8.1 has this wonderful truth. God remembered Noah and every living thing. So I'm going to say that again. God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with Noah in the ark. See the distinction? He remembered every living thing and all the animals that were with, with Noah in the ark. So I have animals with Noah in the ark and animals, every living thing So that went through the flood. Notice the distinction again between every living creature and the animals that were on the ark. The Elohim, the us, Genesis 1, 26, 3, 22. And in uh, Genesis 8, 1, it's Elohim, the us. Remember the or the ha-ha-ya, and the, the behemoth. He remembered every one of them. Again, Genesis 8, 1. Consider the implications of that. He remembers every one of them. Every one of them that have been sacrificed to him. He remembers them. 
And as you know, the implication, you understand Luke 23, to understand the value of being remembered by Christ means that you are remembered in uh, eternal life, resurrected to eternal life. And so that has to be happening here in the uh, in Ezekiel 40 through 48, 45 through 47. Anyway, I've said many times that the city from above, the New Jerusalem, Revelation 21, and the lake of fire, Matthew 25, 41, Revelation 20, 10, uh, were likely revealed, created at the same time. The good and evil side by side. Good and evil side by side. Two trees, two destinations. I got a good and evil uh, tree, tree of life, tree of surely death. And I have two destinations. And so, which destiny will you choose has always been the question. You will choose it. He will not force it on you. You will choose your destiny. Okay, really got to go fast now. Rapid fire time. What is the explanation for the animal sacrifices at Ezekiel 40 through 46? They're what's called the Ezekielian versus the millennial sacrificial system as opposed to the mosaic sacrificial system. I've got the Ezekiel system and the mosaic system. They are not the same. They're very different. So what's the differences? Why do we have this Ezekielian system? Well, we can begin by by noticing Ezekiel 47. In other words, Ezekiel 40 through 46, chapters 40 through 46, chronicles the necessity of the continuance of animal sacrifices. Now, are they the same animal sacrifices that occurred in the Mosaic system? No. Are they animal sacrifices? Somehow they are. And something we should resolve really fast is, for example, why does the nation of Israel have to do this in the millennium? He's doing this with them. Something they do. No other nation's going to be doing this in the millennium. Only Israel. What does Israel need to learn? They have to learn something. He's beating something into their heads. You can call it coercion. It's not. They're willfully doing it. They know the lecture. They know the lesson and they're participating in it. I submit that this is Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21. This is the test of Ecclesiastes 18 to 21. Do you know how good God is? That's what he's doing. Israel must grieve. They mourn for what they have done. They couldn't pass that simple test. It's not that simple. Ezekiel, Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21. And again, the church today can't pass it. It's a mess out there. So I'm saying that Ezekiel 40 through 46 equals Genesis 3.21. What's Genesis 3.21? The slain of the lambs. So what we have here is the slain of the lambs. And that's not just lambs. But what, what ha- those, those animals are remembered because he remembers every living thing. So I submit again, this is Ecclesiastes 3.18 through 21 test. But for today, just notice that Ezekiel 47 follows 44, 45, and 46. Mm-hmm. Again, why I get the big money, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. What's in 47 of Ezekiel? It's healing waters. So I go through this animal sacrifice, 44, 45, 46, and then what happens in 47? Healing waters come. The waters that come to the ankles, and then the waters come to the knees, and then to the waist. Next, the depth of the waters can't be measured, the Bible says. A river that cannot be crossed. And every living thing that moves, wherever the rivers go, will be healed. What does God mean by heal? He does that in 47. We've got animal sacrifices, 44, 45, 46, and then boom. 47, i got the river, the healing waters river. Everything will live. Nefesh shaya, it says. That's the definition of live. That's a Hebrew for live. Obviously, these are resurrection rivers. Trees will not wither. The fruit will not fall. The waters flow from door to, from the door of the temple. How, where do the waters come from? Who is the water? He's the water. He's the living water. He's on the throne. He's the resurrection and the life, uh, John eleven twenty five. That's what he does. He's going to clean the whole mess up, Ezekiel 47. So, how long, how long are the seven chapters of millennial sacrifices? A thousand years? I don't think so. We're going to have to figure out where Ezekiel 47 fits with Revelation 19 through 22. Okay, really fast. Luke from Ohio called. Hi, Luke from Ohio. The other day, actually in October, 
He wanted to discuss the temple potter from Zechariah 11:13, Isaiah 64:8, John 2, 1 through 10, Leviticus 15:12, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 6, and Revelation 2:27. Not necessarily in that order, but that's what he wanted to do. And this, of course, is the first revealing that Jesus Christ is the infinite God of creation in the flesh, which John says that's what he who he is, John 1, 1 through 5. And and uh, Luke wants to talk about the first of the seven undeniable proofs of John. So that's the subject we wanted to get in. John 2, 1 through 10. John 2, 1 through 10 refers to John 1, 1 through 5. Because he says this is God, totally God. And then totally God is at a wedding. Now obviously that refers back to what John says in John 1, 1 through 5. Always keep that in mind, which is why I believe the pottery at John 2, 1 through 10, those vessels that were filled with living water that flows from the throne, the temple of God, and heals and live, everything it touches lives. Okay? Those vessels were filled with living water and wine, good wine. So I'm going to say it this way. They were filled with the living water and the good blood. And water and blood. What came out of Christ? Water and blood. What's happening at that wedding? Water and blood. And I think those vessels were broken. I think they're cracked vessels. Notice how I attach the good wine to the blood of Christ. I've got to point, keep pointing that out. So I have this wedding of Canaan. I'm sorry, a wedding of Cana. It's got to be about resurrection. got to be. I've got living water. i got good blood. i got cracked vessels. It's going to be there. i got the potter himself, the one that made the vessels. Every vessel he looks at is what? We're all cracked. He's got to fix us all, doesn't he? How does he do that? Water and blood. The potter, the, the, Matthew 25, it gives us more information. The bridegroom is at the wedding. The potter wants his vessels filled. The servants knew what he was doing. They're the only ones that knew. The Jewish people, including his mother there, were clueless. Assume this first miracle is astonishingly complex and, and prepare for what's hidden in there. <coughs> Pottery, I got, I got pottery. I have the potter himself standing there. I got the, I got the temple, the temple potter where Judas throws the 30 pieces of symbol out. Silver, I've got broken vessels filled with water and wine. All of that's going on and more. I just really fast went through it with Luke and I'll go fast through it here. But you can see how it applies now. The potter is in the temple. He's in the pottery temple, right? He's the blood and the water and he's, that water's coming out of there. He's filling the whole earth with water, isn't he? And everything it touches, boom, is healed. Ezekiel 47. Luke and I moved along to John 5, 1 through 16, because that's the second of the, of the seven undeniable proofs of John. And it's amazing. A multitude has gathered at Bethesda Pool, this pool of Bethesda. Now, Bethesda means house of mercy. That's what it means. And so the multitude is there. How many is a multitude? They all believe that an angel would steer the water. I talked to Dave about this earlier. And whoever got, whoever of the multitude got into the pool of mercy first, that's the one that's going to be healed. Now, the angel of the Lord is there. The angel of the Lord. Exodus 3, 2. The I am that I am comes. Not any angel. The angel is there. God himself. He's going to stir the water. Now, ask yourself, how many of the old multitude did the living water himself, the angel of the Lord, that multitude that was there, that was all hopeless, wanting to get into that water first. Remember the 38-year-old, he'd been paralyzed, not 38, but the paralyzed man for 38 years. No one can get him in there. Why can't somebody pick him up and throw him in there? Because everybody's trying to get in there themselves. First one in, healed. Did that ever happen? They all believe it. There's a multitude there. An angel's going to come and stir the water. Well, the angel came, and he's going to stir the water. How many of the multitude did the living water himself heal, is my question. That's Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21. That's the test again, isn't it? How many? You're going to find everybody says one. Heal just that one guy. So I want to heal. That guy didn't even get in the water. Christ is done.
So ask yourself the position. Do you think the angel of the Lord who stirred the water, he healed only one guy? Is that how he thinks? Out of a multitude. How big of a multitude? 5,000, 10,000 that are there? Just this one. The rest of you, you keep being sick. Is that, is that your position? Is that what you think he is like? The paralyzed guy was laying there for 38 years. He had no hope of getting into the water first. Did the living God clear out the multitude and heal every single one of them? Once again, Ecclesiastes 3.18-21, Jesus walked through the multitude. Did you notice that in that verse? He walked through the multitude. How did he do that? Because we're made of math. That's how he did it. And he's the mathematician. He knows the math. He walked through a multitude of people like they were not there. So is there a particle-based reality? What does the Bible say? Yes. Very tricky. Okay, that's it for me. Make him stop. <laughs>